on this episode of Oh No, Another Chess Podcast. If you want to learn how to swim, you don't read 10 books about how to learn how to swim. You know, you get in the pool and just iterate, just try to swim and see what happens. And obviously, ideally, you would be getting feedback from someone who actually knows what they're doing. And it's the same thing in chess. So you can acquire all this knowledge, all these like rules of thumb and etc. But it's really, it's a game of decision-making and you need to tighten up your, your decision-making process. Hello and welcome to Ono, another chess podcast. In this episode, Ben Johnson returns to the Ono Zone to celebrate my third chess birthday. Ben is, of course, the host of the Perpetual Chess podcast and more recently, the author of Perpetual Chess Improvement. In the interview, we discuss some of my favorite things from Ben's new book, including exploring the difference between necessary and unnecessary fallibility. We catch up with Ben's own chess this past year and discuss the meta behind chess improvement for who is it possible and whether or not it's worth the sacrifice. Last year, when I interviewed Ben for the blog, he was the only one who turned up to my second chess birthday party. But this year, you're invited to be sure to join both me and Ben to continue the conversation next Friday, the 15th of December at 1900 UTC for the patron Zoom Hangout. For now, enjoy the episode. You're listening to Oh No, Another Chess Podcast. All right, Ben, why don't you start by telling me what do you love most about chess? What do I love most about chess? Did you read the book? It's communities. <laughs> the true joy of chess is the friends you make along the way. So what is your chess community? Because you talk about the volume of them in the book, um, but you didn't mention, you know, who is, uh, who are your chess friends? What communities are you part of? Yeah. So the East Coast United States chess community is, it's fairly tight knit. It feels like everyone's like one degree of separation. But as I've discussed, Many times, like in the the course of doing perpetual chess, I mean, my closest community is, of course, I, I went to the same school as Greg and Jennifer Shahadi, and uh, my team, uh, the Masterman team, was kind of like a chess powerhouse. Um, so we won the nationals one year, and we're always fairly competitive uh, in in those um, competitions. So it was just like just hanging out and playing chess with friends. And, you know, I went to like a public school in Philadelphia. So it was diverse people of different, you know, first generation immigrants, all all races and socioeconomic backgrounds. So it was just a lot of fun to get to know people from all walks of life, where even at a school that had a fairly um, diverse student base, you wouldn't necessarily do that if you're not like get to know that many people if you're not in an activity. And then there was stuff like my um, when my school won the nationals, we actually tied with a school coached by a young IM by the name of Maurice Ashley, um, and they played from they played on a team in Harlem called the Raging Rooks, um, and they got a lot of attention, rightfully so. And they ended up actually arranging a match where they flew us to New Mexico, and we played kind of a playoff against Maurice Ashley's team. But it was also like we just hung out a lot. Um, you know, played basketball, played blitz, etc. So it was just this very formative experience from a young age. And I was lucky enough to have a few of those. I mean, as I've grown older, of course, um, my community has become, uh, it's grown over the years. Like I'm good friends with FM Mike Klein. We lived together in Brooklyn because after I graduated from university, I went and ended up teaching chess in New York. So I learned from people like uh, Elizabeth Spiegel from the Brooklyn Castle 
movie. Um, you know, Dimitri Schneider was around. He was like a young prodigy. So there were just a lot of like active chess players, sometimes centered around the marshal, but you would also see them at all these tournaments. Um, so my community kind of started with my school, but it's kind of grown from there over the years. Cool. Yeah. And so, and maybe I can sort of hazard a guess at some of these people now from the more frequent guests on Perpetual Chess, like Christopher Chabri, who I know interviewed you about your book. Do you have like sort of a new, newer friends now that you maybe go over games with or... Actually, not so much. I mean, there's certainly people I could ask if I had games I wanted to go over. I was working with a coach for um, a, a long time, uh, Grandmaster Axel Bachman. Um, we kind of lost momentum at some point around actually when I was really trying to finish the book um, early this calendar year. Um, I just needed to focus so much on the book that I ended up putting lessons aside and I wasn't really competing at the time. Um, and we haven't picked it back up yet. Um, I, I hope to at some point, but I mean, he's an amazing coach. I definitely recommend Grandmaster Axel Bachman for anyone uh, looking for someone. Um, so, and now I'm playing regularly, somewhat weekly games. Um, but lately, like usually in a perfect world, I'd be going over the games with a stronger player. But lately, I'm just kind of going through the motions, making notes and, and, uh, Checking the engine and so on, but honestly, I could be working harder at the moment. Cool. Where are you getting weekly games just now? Um, I found a local club. I already, I always knew it was there, but it turns out it's only like a thirty-five minute drive from where I live, so I'm able to play um, reasonably strong competition every Wednesday night. Nice. That's great. Yeah, I think these, uh, and you even mentioned in the book that this. Uh, that you know you want local leagues or whatever yeah exactly these... it's funny it's like i spoke it into existence although um as shabri said when he interviewed me it was actually there the whole time so anyway there's some sort of little parable there i'm not sure exactly which one but yeah once i found out it was close it's really been a game changer um most almost all for the good the only bad thing is now i have zero desire desire to play in weekend tournaments because <laughs> they're, they're just intense yeah, no, I can imagine. Like, I, I really love having the sort of weekly games here as well. And for me, it's put me off online chess. You know, the, right. the significance of it as well has just dropped off a cliff for me, basically. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I think that's mostly a good thing. I mean, as I discuss in the book, if you have something to look forward to, something that feels important, I do think that there's a greater chance that you'll be able to extract lessons from it. Yeah, and I definitely think uh, what you were saying as well about... Uh, uh, though I'm not entirely sure this was in relation to that, but that being in different spaces kind of drives your learning almost, you yeah, because you have a sort of unique experience there for that. Yeah, um, I mean that was something that I just came across in researching. I decided uh, it was my friend Han Schut who suggested I do a chapter about deliberate practice and sort of optimal conditions for how to approach the study of chess, not what to study, not which book, which tactics, puzzles, or whatever, but actually like. What routines should you have? And it was in studying that that I started to come across different neuroscientists talking about the importance of differentiated environments and engaging the muscle memory and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, that kind of sounds like OTP chess. Yeah, I didn't, I have to say from the book, I really didn't expect the book to be like that. But it's clear like, you, you know, you draw a lot of lessons from sort of non-chess literature, from cognitive psychology and, you know, various different fields. It's a Super interesting read. I definitely recommend people go and pick it up. And it's, it really is a read. You know, I think 
to me, the chess diagrams in the books are almost like pictures in a biography. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's nice to have them there, but you can really read around them. You do not need a chessboard for this book. And I think that's a really refreshing thing to have. Thank you. Yeah, it's not by accident. I mean, I wrote the book basically without the diagrams. And then later on, I was like, all right, I better get some chess diagrams in here. So some of them are, you know, pretty directly related. Like when I quote, you know, David Howell told a story about learning from a classic, um, the famous Fisher Benko game where he sort of plugs the F pawn and Howell had a famous, uh, well, actually not that famous, but um, beautiful example of putting this into practice. So there were a few examples like that where I felt like it's really on point, but other times it was like, you know, here's the game that Ben Feingold's talking about when he like hid the chess pieces. But the game itself is like this theoretical 2800 battle that I like, I'm not going to sit there and try to annotate it. You know, I'm like, who, who am I kidding? This game has been studied to death by players like way better than me. So, um, so yeah, it's a little bit of both in the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And so I think. As well, I, uh, you know, not, <laughs> not that I'm surprised by this or anything, Ben, but it's really well written. Have you done any, do you have like a background in writing or anything like that? Uh, well, thank you. I mean, I was what's called a liberal arts major here in the United States. So it basically means you study a non-rigorous subject. It's a nice way of saying that. <laughs> um, so I studied uh, political science and Russian and you had to write a lot at university. And I did used to have people telling me that I was a good writer, but, and I've had like one or two, you know, failed blogs around the course of my life. But basically, I've always been an avid reader and I've always really enjoyed writing. And I thought I was decent at it, but um, I don't have like a long history of writing things publicly. Yeah, that's cool. It definitely, definitely comes across, especially in like the narratives that you weave around like a. Levy Rosman's sort of journey. And uh, <laughs> I think in the same chapter as Kevin Goldwing's uh, pursuit of the GM title as well. And I really feel like you bring that as a story, you know? I mean, there are some amazing stories. Like, uh, I mean, thank you for the kind words, but the stories kind of tell themselves in some cases, like Kevin Goldwing. I mean, it's like it really could be a movie. It's a beautiful tale of perseverance. And, and you do need to, you know, I try to be somewhat circumspect in my advice about like pushing too hard for. Uh, titles um, and, you know, rating, round rating numbers in the book. But at the same time, I didn't want to pretend like there aren't success stories. So it's, you know, and Kevin is a, is a great success story of someone who gave up a lot to try to pursue the GM title and did make it. Yeah, no, his, uh, his story really is amazing. So yeah, touching on that, like these, these stories of, uh, in, in, you know, all of these improvers, it was kind of interesting to me to see all of them like smushed together because <laughs> you're so used right. to them. Especially the adult improver interviews are obviously a bit more spaced out throughout your podcast. Um, and one thing I did notice was that a lot of, if not all of these improvers were not only very accomplished in what they'd achieved in chess, you know, whether, wherever they'd started from, whether it was, you know, gaining the grandmaster title in adulthood or, you know, going to 1500 in one year or something like that from starting from complete scratch. Um, but it seemed that all of these improvers were not only successful in chess, but were also really successful in life. And I wondered, was that like a, a conscious choice that you were picking people that would also have an interesting story? Or do you think that there's a correlation there? Wow, that's fascinating. I, no one has ever mentioned that to me. Um, so obviously, before I interview 
people as adult improvers, especially as the the podcast has grown over the years. I am interested in sort of what angle they're coming from, what what story they have to tell. So maybe there's a bit of selection bias there. But in terms of the actual writing, I didn't filter for like accomplishment. I was just either something was fresh in my head that someone had said, or I also I had like a transcript database of all the podcasts. So in some cases, I was looking for an illustrative quote along a particular theme. But to extrapolate more broadly from from your suggestion, or no, I think it might just be that like if you're successful in one thing, you know, you might have a leg up in terms of like what you can achieve, how you approach chess, uh, things like that. So there, there, you know, this is far from uh, data, but there may be something there. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, it was just something I noticed that every second page, like, wow, this person's really successful, and this one as well. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's nice to see. Um, all right, so you kind of touched on the uh, the whole uh, rating thing there uh, as well a few minutes ago. I want to read a quote from the book. You wrote that chess is hierarchical. Anyone who has spent years in the chess world knows how difficult this game is. So more respect is often accorded to those who have achieved more. These factors can make the lower rated among us all the more driven to succeed, to potentially be more respected than our peers. So I think my question is, and I spoke about my wife in this episode, in the previous episode uh, extensively about this. Um, but yeah, I sort of wondered if a lot of, uh, you know, rating improvement, it's almost like wanting to be the coolest kid in school, right? Or move, move up the, the social ladder. And I would argue that your drive to do that and the motivation to improve can sometimes come from a sort of sense of a poor sense of self-worth. Uh, do you think that low self-esteem can drive a more passionate attempt at chess improvement if you're sort of never um, satisfied with your own rating, if that makes sense? Maybe, but to me, there's just there's something very human in the whole thing. It's just inescapable. I mean, that's sort of what I was trying to get at by highlighting the example of Levy Rosman, is he didn't really need more respect, you know? Like, everyone, I mean, of course, someone uh, at his level of uh, of fame is going to have his, his naysayers, but by and large, I mean, he's obviously wildly successful um, and generally beloved. I mean, of course, there might be a few grandmasters here and there just jealous of the... Um, professional success that he's had, um, and of maybe a few online trolls. But overall, for his level of fame, it seems to me like he's just uh, has a very high Q rating. Um, and he was still, you know, very driven to get this this extra title that basically, like, if he got it, people would think it was a cool achievement. They would think it's cool that you tried really hard to do this thing and you did it. But they wouldn't think like, oh, when he was an IM, I thought he was garbage at chess, but now he's a GM, you know, um, especially because like at that level, a lot of it is just like, did you jump through the hoops, you know, um, now at the lower level. So I just think it's indicative of the fact that we're all we're all going to feel that way almost always, you know. So I do think it it helps to really look hard at your motivation, because if you are doing it to impress other people, it's not like it's going to go away when your rating goes up 150 points. It's just going to be on to the next thing. Now, if you enjoy the whole process of, you know, studying many hours a day to do that, 
uh, to try to achieve those goals, then then by all means. But but if you're like trying to like fill some hole in your soul, <laughs> like getting there, you know, getting that next rating level is probably not actually gonna gonna do the job. Sure. Yeah. And I thought there was like an element of that, and it's kind of and I you know obviously I don't know why Levy was going for the GM title. Uh, you know, I don't know the man, but. I think uh, there's always this element of it's like not quite enough. And I was thinking about uh, this. I can't exactly remember who it was. I think it was Roman Abramovich who used to own Chelsea, this Russian, you know, multimillionaire. And he was in court. And I just remember the, the, the judge sort of asking him, you know, like calling him super rich. And he's like, oh, hold on. I'm not rich. He's like, right. I'm one of the poorest of all of my friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> or something like this, you know? So I guess it is all relative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So one of the, I think the most in, interesting parts of the actual chess improvement, what I thought was that there's a lot of, um, you know, lo- there's a lot of great advice in there. Absolutely. Um, but the one thing that I had actually never heard before, um, y- you sort of divide chess errors rather eloquently into necessary and unnecessary fallibility. Um, could you expand on what those mean? Yeah. So this comes from a book called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande, which I've been asked in the past, like my favorite or my my best book recommendations that aren't about chess for chess players. And I would definitely put put that one in there. So he goes through sort of the history of people making errors. Um, and they did some big study in the late 1970s um, where they were looking at like why buildings collapsed and stuff like that. And they basically ended up designated errors into designating errors into two categories: those that are necessary fallibility and unnecessary fallibility. So basically, errors that you couldn't control and errors that you could control. And through the lens of chess, um, I look at that kind of like whether you're making a basic blunder or just missing something that was kind of beyond your capability. Um, and when you go through your games, just to try to tr- sort of highlight that. And if you do find that you're making what we would call um, uh, unnecessary fallibility type errors where you're just having oversights and you're just feeling like, you know, I'm not playing up to my potential. um, I encourage people to not just like beat yourself over the head for that, which of course you should do, but to also like try to figure out why it's happening. And I quote my friend Han Schutt um, in that section of the book. He's a big fan of what he calls root cause analysis. But basically... You want to just keep asking yourself why and try to get to the core. It might be that you're not sleeping well. It might be that, you know, nerves are getting in the way. It might be that like relationship trouble is like distracting you, you know, like it could be anything. But in these cases of, um, I always get (laughs) unnecessary and necessary fallibility conflated, but in these cases of errors that you can avoid, um, that you want to try to figure out what's causing them and to what extent you could change them. And you, so that chat, that stuff is all discussed in a chapter about checklists, suggesting that they can be a helpful tool to sort of tighten up your thinking process and hopefully limit blunders. But of course, it's one of those things that's uh, much easier um, said than done. Yeah, I think it was really interesting to me because that's definitely, you know, that's my own coaching philosophy as well, right? Because I'm not trying to help people understand the chess mistakes that they already know are mistakes, but that's the problem. When we're looking at our games, you're like, well, I know I shouldn't have played Rook D8 or whatever it is. 
but I played it anyway. <laughs> so why right. did I play it? And, yeah. And the other category, as you say, the sort of necessary fallibility. And again, now I'm getting them mixed up, I think. But, <laughs> right. Uh, is, you know, making a mistake that you had no idea was a mistake. And I see that too. Right. It's like, and like, for example, I always challenge uh, my students, especially because they're sort of on the lower rating end of the spectrum. A lot of the times people will exchange pieces very easily, right? And exchange is available, I'll make it. And so I get them to view every exchange with uh, a healthy dose of pessimism, right? I'm not going to make this exchange unless I can come up with a good reason that it's good for me. And I really don't mind if a student comes up with a reason and they make the exchange uh, because even if the exchange is wrong, right? Because at least they've done the thought process is correct, right? The framework, the thinking process is right. They've evaluated and they've came up with a reason that is good, even though it was actually bad, right? And as they right. learn more about chess, that, that will go away as long as the thought process is there. They're actually considering the exchange and not just making it without a good reason. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, sometimes just having that trigger, I mean, that's also why I talk about like meditation, because meditation can be helpful for things like that, where if you just think to yourself, hey, this is the mistake I've made 20 other times. Like if you just have that one thought, like that will set you on the path to make a more thorough analysis. But if if it's just pure reaction, then it's going to be very hard to uh, very hard to plug that leak. No. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And so... It's weird to me then, because I got really excited about this, because it, it seems strange that every chess book is designed to fill you with more and more knowledge, right? And right. there seems like there's very little resources. I mean, with the exception of, as you say, analyzing your own games, maybe with a coach, but really just trying to be introspective about, well, I already knew this, right? So going and getting more knowledge is not going to help, right? So in order to stop making these mistakes, you... you like there's just not a lot of resources on how to do that yourself is what I feel like. And I wondered if you have any idea why that is. Um, because I, my guess is that it's so individual that like you can't really put it in a book, you know, like people make the analogy and I agree with this analogy. People will say like as they're discussing chess improvement, like if you want to learn how to swim, you don't read 10 books about how to learn how to swim, you know. You get in the pool and just iterate, just try to swim and see what happens. And obviously, ideally, you would be getting feedback from someone who actually knows what they're doing. Um, and it's the same thing in chess. So you can try to, um, you can you can acquire all these knowledge, all this knowledge, all these like rules of thumb and et cetera. But it's really, it's a game of decision making. Um, and you need to tighten up your, your decision making process. So. I just think that in that regard, books certainly have their role and they certainly have their appeal, but um, they they can't be a substitute for the actual playing and analyzing, which is where those those mistakes, which are often sort of very individual, um, do sort of come to the fore. Yeah, and I, you do mention in the book that obviously Jesse Cry is a proponent of pages and pages of introspection and self-analysis, basically. And so I think that is one way to maybe go about it. Yeah, and there are, like, I'm rereading uh, Jeremy Soman's The Amateur's Mind right now. I'm getting ready to do a book podcast about it. And he's someone who was very in tune with amateur's thought processes and trying to sort of point them out. And 
definitely ahead of his time in that regard and very uh, astute at noticing common thought patterns that people have. Um, so I do think there's some value in uh, going through books like that. Dan Heisman is another good author who's who can be insightful on these topics. There is some value in that, but I still think that at the end of the day, like it's your own games and getting your own feedback is going to be, you know, more helpful more often than uh, seeing mistakes that other amateurs make. I mean, it can be good as like a supplement to say like, hey, I'm not alone in like always being too concerned about king safety is like a theme that that Selman uh, highlights. Um, so it can be good to see that you're not alone and that others also have these sort of proclivities, but but the bottom, but you're better off just spending more time playing and analyzing. And reading for me, I mean, as I say in the book, like that doesn't mean that I um, read less. It means that I expect less from my reading. You know, I, st I still do it um, because I enjoy it, but I don't have um, a lot of uh, a lot of illusions that it's going to like lead to some massive uh, gain in in my chess. Yeah, and I so I think I I remember one of my friends said to me uh, in an analysis about a year ago, and I didn't believe him. <laughs> he was like. I've kind of covered everything, right? I've covered the chess knowledge that like, it's really hard for me to unearth. I've played chess for 25 years and it's really hard for me to like, I'm never, I never open a chess book and I'm just blown away by this brand new bit of information that I didn't know. Like, uh, you know, that happens very rarely to them. They, they thought. And so I wonder, especially where you are at a, the sort of level where I think a lot of maybe your listeners are kind of aspiring to get to, right? And, do you think that it's very difficult? Like, when's the last time you opened a book and it just blew you away with a new bit of chess information? Yeah, I mean, it's more a different way of looking at things, a different way of packaging the same information. I mean, two people who I do consider quite um, original thinkers in in terms of chess writing, I've mentioned them many times before, are uh, Jan Marcos is under the surface and uh, I am Willie Hendricks. But I do think that that's the exception um, rather than than the rule. Yeah. So you do you feel like then that sort of most of your improvement is not coming from gathering more knowledge at this point, but just about trying to stop doing the things you already know are wrong? <laughs> yeah, that's part of it. But it's also just it's chess in some senses is a game of brute force. Like your ability, your for your mind to fire more quickly and for you to calculate better um, at some point. Um, is going to to play an important part. Like I quote Sam Shanklin um, saying something along those lines, um, basically saying he's always going to bet on the player who can calculate better if you don't have any other information. And unfortunately, it's just that seems to be the hardest thing to improve at. You know, I get into some of the potential reasons why in my book. So it's not that I know every fact, and I certainly know from like when I was working with Axel Bachman, like he would show me opening ideas and then I would go and play and I would play not just uh, OTB games, but when I'm working hard on my game, I'm playing Entitled Tuesday a lot, trying to incorporate the opening ideas. Um, but I would just forget what he told me. And I would, be, you know, I would say, I know we talked about this position, but I can't remember for the life of me what he said. And then that would happen again. Um, and uh, that, you know, other people just remember with less effort, you know? 
Um, so that doesn't mean that I can't get better, but it does like I could take notes and review what he says afterwards. I can record the sessions and rewatch them, but that's time that I'm spending to make an incremental gain that someone else is not having to spend that time, you know? Um, and, and that's over that compounds over the course of your life. So it, it reaches a point where, um, I'm closer to what my ceiling would be maybe than than some other, as you say, sort of motivated improvers. And what that means is not that I can't get better, but again, I might have to work twice as hard for incremental gain as some other people. And it, devo- it demotivates me for sure. I imagine writing this book took up a quite a large chunk of the last year. Because um, I think the last time we sort of spoke properly, I invited you, of course, to my second chess birthday party. This is my third. Unforgettable birthday party was off the hook. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> the, the, this is now my third chess birthday party that, I'll, uh, that, that you've turned up at. Didn't invite anyone else this time. I didn't <laughs> want the disappointment of none of them turning up again. Right. But, uh, um, yeah. So w- th- this year, I, I imagine you've been super occupied with this book. Is that, is it eaten into your own chess improvement time or? Yeah. I mean, it definitely did in until, um, until I turned it into the publisher. And actually, even in the last month, now that it's finally come out, um, you know, a lot of interviews and stuff like that, a few book signings. Um, so it's definitely taken away some of my chess slash professional um, time. But uh, overall, it's been really gratifying. I mean, I, there was there was definitely a period where I had written a lot and I just wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get it together to actually like show it to anyone. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm glad that I pushed through. Yeah, it's really impressive to, to get a project like that done. I can't imagine, like, even just with a single blog post, I'm going back and forth between this is terrible and unpublishable. And, right. And then I'm a genius the next week and then <laughs> yeah, it's unpublishable yeah. again. So I know it's a, a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Um, and I know you must be busy with all the promo just now, like, uh, as you say, but do you think uh, that all that time that you were dedicating to the book, how are you going to spend that going into your your next year? Yeah, well, I'm working on a chessable course with a much shorter turnaround. Um, supposed to be due in January. So I'm actually, and I followed my tried and true process of procrastinating as much as possible, you know, until it's closer to being due. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, you know, I just need to do 60 to 90 minutes every single day. And if I start now, I should be okay. Um, so I started three days ago and I'm actually following through. But until then, it was kind of similar to how I treated the book where I would work in fits and starts and not be on a sustainable pace for finishing. So, um, but it's it's definitely exercising different muscles. It's obviously a lot more chess-centric than, <laughs> than perpetual chess improvement. Um, but I'm, I'm enjoying the process of working on this chessable course so far. Cool. Do you think, uh, because I know you've mentioned several times in your own podcast that you have some issues with time trouble in your games. Do you think that your procrastination in life for these projects is showing up on the board as a reflection of your personality? Oh, for sure. I think, yeah, it's all connected. My wife makes fun of me because I don't even, I think this is slightly unjustified. Um, Not that she's going to hear this, but, (laughs) um, but, oh, that I can't make up my mind what to get at dinner and stuff like that. Um, It's definitely all connected. Yeah, it's amazing how these things always show up. Um, Can you talk about what your chessable course is about or not yet? Yeah, um, so 
I'm still kind of fleshing out a few ideas, but the broad theme um, is helping people try to identify critical moments in their games. And it's going to be skewed towards like basically under 1400 chess.com. Um, so what are the, you know, what type of situations lead to critical moments? How can we get better? And it kind of ties into the time travel thing because it's something that um, as I actually have gotten a little better at managing my time, as much as I've talked about it over the years, um, still a work in progress to be sure, but I have made incremental progress. And part of it um, is just trying to be hyper-conscious of uh, which decisions are likely to matter and which are not. So I wanted to sort of apply that framework to like a, a chess level where I feel like I can really help. So I'm going through, I downloaded a bunch of games from the Lee Chess database and I'm just going through amateur games and trying to focus on the factors of like, um, you know, when a game gets decided, what are the sort of uh, landmarks to look for? Yeah, that's uh, that sounds good. Uh, do you think because it's something you struggled with that you've sort of become really familiar with that as a as a problem that makes you better or equipped to sort of teach that? I that's the hope, at least. I also think my background as a uh, former poker pro, like I'm sort of that sort of conditioned me to think in uh, probabilities and sort of expected value of different decisions. So I'm trying to apply that framework to to chess. So having struggled with it, and I wouldn't say I've come out the other side, but I've at least gotten a little bit better. Um, having struggled with it myself and and just having um, experienced it as a poker player, I do hope that um, I, I think about the game a little more probable. I can't say that word. Probabilistically <laughs> than some others. Okay, yeah. And I think, you know... Uh... It's funny when I interviewed Sarah Herman, uh, she was the, f f I, I always thought there's maybe an element of luck in chess, um, but I wasn't really sure how much. And she seemed to be like, no, definitely there's luck in chess. What, what do you think about that in terms of, uh, your poker background and probabilities and things like that? Do you think? Yeah, there definitely is someone, some super GM was talking about this recently. I can't remember what the context was, if it was an interview or what, but Anyway, um, yeah, just in terms of like how often you land your prep at the top level, whether they happen to go into an opening that you that you know, um, you might have a day where you're tired and you're like more susceptible to making a blunder than uh, than you normally would be. But whether you actually make the blunder, you know, like if you showed up with that level of alertness ten days, like you're not going to make a blunder every day. I mean, you're not going to make a blunder zero days. So, like, does it happen that day? Does your opponent happen to see it? So it's much more unseen than in poker, and it's much smaller than in poker. But certainly over a small sample, I think luck it, luck plays plays a major role. Yeah, I think, I, I, in fact, the very first league game I played here, um, the way they, they did it at the local club was they basically fold the page in half, so the highest-rated player at the club who's actually a grandmaster, plays the lowest rated player at the club oh, wow. for, for the first round. And it's like a tradition, I think, that they have. Anyway, it meant that in my first round, I played someone that around your strength. And I have to say, I would I keep describing it to people. It was like the, the film Slumdog Millionaire. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have. I, it's been a while. 
I managed to get a draw and I honestly should have won it. I, I was definitely capable of winning it, but it was just one of those days where just everything went right. Like right. I'd, I'd looked at that exact opening with a student about an hour before the game that, you know, my student played this line and they just happened to play that against me. And I was just like, what? Uh, so I had like good engine prep for like quite deep into the game. And then I guess my opponent doesn't make many mistakes, but they made this, I guess, uncharacteristic sacrifice that just didn't work. And uh, yeah, we also ended like the middle game was in a structure that I feel like I understand. And then finally, the end game was, I, I you know, one thing I have studied a lot of is rook end games. And I managed to find a sort of miracle draw, even though I'd completely chucked the game. Nice. Where I was down two pawns in a rook end game, but I just knew how to draw it, right? I could just, I could just see it. I was like, from moves back, but it was, uh, definitely just, yeah, very, very lucky is how I would describe it. Yeah, it's a factor for sure. I mean, in my game last week, I was, I played badly and was worse. And my opponent was like 1900 and like hung a mate in two. Like, when's the last time he hung a mate in two, you know? Like, it, it has to have been a while. But now, and it's funny how the mind works, because then you go home and, you know, I'm like, you know, I, like I said, I've been busy and not super motivated lately. So, um, so <laughs> I, like, don't feel like looking at the game because it's like, oh, I won, you know? I, I don't need to look at that game. But meanwhile, like, I played like crap. I was worse the whole game. The opening was like a disaster, like, if there's ever a game I should study, it's that one. But because the guy hung a mate in two, now I'm a genius again, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely feel you there. Um, yeah, so uh, going to the club then every week, is this, you know, you're saying you're struggling for motivation. I know you even mentioned in the book, like, losing your chessable streak. It was hard to get back into. I have definitely struggled with that this year with our us moving countries. It's just been really hard to get, gain a rhythm. Um, so going to the club, is it just more for enjoyment chess for you right now? Or do you still harbor desires of improving, getting back to 2200? Um, I do have some desires of, uh, of getting back to 2200, but I have to say my perspective is somewhat framed from Todd Bryant, who wrote a great blog post for chess.com that anyone who hasn't seen it should check out sort of summarizing, like, you know, this is what I've observed from a sort of meta analysis of, you know, um, the most accomplished adult improvers that he could find in the U.S. chess database. And to be blunt, I mean, one thing, and I interviewed Todd as well, and he he discussed it even more. Um, he talks about like different paths um, where there's like sort of a path where you just kind of go straight up and then there's a path where you kind of squiggle and then go up and then squiggle and then go up. But he also talks about what he calls the Fred Wilson path. Fred Wilson is a, a bookseller in New York City, sells great uh, used chess books um, and author as well. And Fred, you know, was basically a lifetime USCF 2100. But then at some point at the age of 72, I believe it was, and he's mentioned in my book as well, he basically just went on a heater and got up to 2200. And I want to get my rating back up to 2200. But I have to say, when I'm lacking motivation, it's more just the keep playing. And I do think that's the single best thing for improving. So it's kind of like if you're doing nothing else, at least I'm doing the, the most important thing. Um, but some combination of waiting for a period where I really feel like pushing harder 
or just getting lucky, you know, and just sort of catching a string of good results, which can happen because, like I mentioned with the mate and two, um, because you're playing frequently. So it's not, um, you know, certainly uh, there are people who, who might set forth a more pure and admirable path, but that's where I am at the moment, at least. Mm, cool, cool. And yeah, I'll put links to uh, Todd's blog post and the interview that you did with him in the show notes. It is a really interesting article for sure. He did a good job. And the good news is, you know, spoiler alert, if you're going to read the article, there is hope, <laughs> according to Todd's research. Yeah, there really is. There's Todd found a lot of examples out there. It made me wonder because I definitely in my book, I try to, I'm trying to caution people more than I'm trying to encourage them. I mean, I certainly share some encouraging stories. But, you know, chess is just a hobby at the end of the day for almost all of us. So I just don't want people to give up too much from their, air quotes, real lives, you know, for something that might not happen in the chess realm. Um, but Todd, you know, he found a ton of examples. And now I'm sort of grappling with how many of these do I interview? You know, I just <laughs> just last week came, you know, did come out with someone who gained like 300 points in like two years from 1700 to 2000. And, you know, that's pretty rare. So it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to, to strike the balance between highlighting the success stories without making everyone, you know, who didn't have the same results feel bad. Yeah, sure. And one of the things I, I noticed that, you, you know, you're trying to sort of caution this, but one thing I will always say is, and I see this in my students, you know, some of them gain, you know, obviously the level of coaching, grabbing 300 points is a lot easier than it is grabbing 300 points from... 1700 to 2000. But, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. I, I think everyone's on this journey and it doesn't matter if you're 600 on chess.com and you're trying to reach a thousand and that's, you know, your long-term goal. Like, I think that's like, there's no, who's to say that that process isn't just as hard as someone who got to master when they were 14, you know, maybe you're even working harder to achieve that. And right. That's your achievement. And yeah. so I think the journey is is very important. Well said, yeah. Couldn't agree more. One question I did have from a Patreon supporter, Dawn, she asks, uh, when is the audio version of the book going to come out? Okay, yeah. Shout out to Dawn. I think she asked me on Twitter at some point. And Dawn, I've got bad news, if I haven't already shared this with you online by the time you hear this. Um, so the audiobook is coming. And actually, I just heard from the editor last week. The good news is he, he's turning in the the editing will be finished this week. The bad news is I found out that Amazon takes longer than I thought. So I had previously been saying I thought the audiobook would be out in December. Now it's looking more like January. So I apologize. I'm a bit frustrated. But not only, obviously, this is my first book. So I didn't have a lot of experience in the audiobook realm. But it's also the first time New in Chess has published a chess audiobook. So um, just uh, the timeline takes a little bit longer. I don't know what exactly Amazon's doing for the eight weeks it takes them to uh, turn the files into a published audiobook, but um hoping for January at this point, Don, and, th and thanks for your interest. I think definitely with that format, your book is going to work very well. It made it into uh, my top 10 books, wordy chess books for yeah, the lazy exactly. people like me that don't want to use a board. Um, I'm with you. I mean, that's part of, I had me in mind when I was writing the book too, because I, yeah, I often like, you know, you, you want to be like doing something chess centric, but you don't feel like working hard, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 Why don't we talk about your sub stack for a bit? How's that been? Because Linkfest, how, how old is Linkfest now? 
Yeah, it's been over a year. So something like 60-something uh, Linkfests now. Yeah, it's been decent. I mean, I've got close to 4,000 subscribers. I don't know exactly how many. Um, it's not monetized at all. So, you know, I'm not really attempting to monetize it. Um, so that, you know, makes it... Right now, I have no plans of quitting, but certainly things could come up where I wouldn't be able to pursue it under its current, um, you know, its current format. But I mainly enjoy it because it really helps me stay on top of chess news um, because you know how things can get. Like, you know, you you see someone wrote something and you're meaning to read it, but you put it in one of your 40 unopened tabs. And then if your browser crashes, it's gone forever, you know? Um, so I've had stuff like that happen many times. And, and also just like following the chess news can be like, such a fire hose of events and information that it's just easy to lose track of. So for me, it's a great way to once a week, make sure I haven't missed anything major and to take advantage of the fact that I'm dedicating that time by sharing it with, uh, with people who are interested. And it is interesting in that it's kind of mirrored the podcast in that like perpetual chess started primarily sort of human interest angle of chess, interviewing players. And obviously that's still a major part of what I do, but there's also uh, the adult improver interviews. And even when I interview accomplished grandmasters, I do try to extract some chess improvement advice, which I didn't necessarily do in the early days. But it's a similar thing with, with Substack because I do get more information about what people are interested in and at least what my audience is interested in. And I find that they're it could be because they're getting their chess news elsewhere. Um, it could have to do with sort of selection bias of who's subscribed, but they're something like, you know, six to 10 times more likely to click on a chess improvement related post than like, you know, who's winning in Qatar sort of thing. Mm. And yeah, well, that shocks me. So wh where are these people getting their news if it's not from you? Because that's one thing that I was sort of speaking about with Chris Callahan was the... Uh, yeah, I was sort of lamenting the fact that there doesn't seem to be one coherent place where you can go for your chess news, you know? And I think considering how big chess is, that's sort of shocking. Yeah, I yeah, I enjoyed the interview you did with Chris. Um, and I think it's all chess.com. I mean, I notice mm -hmm. when I link my stuff, like, obviously, I'm a fan, you know, Chessable sponsors Perpetual Chess, and I'm a fan of chess.com. I mean, I think people like to crap on them. But they've done they've done an, an absolutely amazing job at growing the game of chess, and no one wants to give them any credit for it. It's crazy. Like they're just so savvy in terms of like what they've done in terms of like Pog Champs. Like I don't personally enjoy Pog Champs, but if we think about the number of new chess fans that have come into the world, like how can you know how can you discount that? Um, so anyway, <laughs> that's that's sort of a tangent. But when when I'm Following the chess news, I do find that, like, I do go to chessbase.com, who also covers chess news. Um, and those two are basically it in terms of, like, what I can link to in terms of coverage of top tournaments. Even, like, Dennis Monacrucis is someone I interviewed a while back. He has a substack called The Chess Mind. His, his blog, like mine, not monetized. So it's like there'll be periods where he's covering an event super detailed and provides, like, free analysis of the games, and he's a very strong player. But then he'll just disappear for a month or two, which is totally understandable. But that's sort of, as you and Chris discussed, 
that's sort of what we're dealing with. Um, so it seems like those chess.com stories, like independent of the link fest, having nothing to do with um, my little Substack, it seems like they get a lot of interest. So my working theory is um, that people know that if you want to catch up on the chess news, that chess.com is sort of one-stop shopping. Sure, yeah. Maybe it's just that. Maybe I'm just missing it. And maybe it, it could be because chess.com is such a large website that it's somehow, uh, yeah, not, there's not like a coherent landing page, but I'm having to be careful what I say because I have to confess, I don't go on chess.com that often. Right. Uh, so yeah, maybe, maybe yeah, there is I a found good that too. Like if I'm there. looking for a certain page, I don't try to find it within the navigation thing. I'll, I would just Google chess.com news right. and then like it would come up rather than like try to sort through the like, you know, 50 different things. Yeah, so I'm on chess.com now and there is a news tab, um, but there is only sort of two news articles and then it's straight into other things. So it's maybe a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit confusing. But I do seem to see, at least on Twitter anyway, that there are a couple of um, writers who, uh, chess.com, who are writing for chess.com and they seem to have the bulk of the stories uh, anyway. Yeah, sure. Tarye does great work. Leon Watson... Uh, Anthony Levin, um, Vanessa West. I mean, I, I know them all because I'm linking to them like every week and they're they're all doing great work. They're great writers. And I'm always impressed when you read their articles, like if there's an event, they're watching the event, you know? Mm -hmm. They're not just like mailing it in, playing through some moves. You know, they always have quotes from the broadcasts, uh, quotes from the players. So I'm really impressed with with the work that that they do. But yeah, it's hard for me to gauge from my perch from my perch, I definitely observe l less interest in chess event, top events and news uh, than um, chess improvement. But again, I don't know if that's just because of who my audience is or if that's like a broader thing. And someone like me, I struggle with that too. Like I'm super fired up about the world championship cycle and the FIDE World Cup and the Olympiad and Tata Steel. And that's about it. Like everything beyond that, I'm just like, I could take it or leave it, to be honest. And if that, and if I can say that, like, obviously by objective standards, an extremely hardcore chess fan, if I feel that way, like where, where does that leave everyone else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, okay, not so many people are clicking on the news. Where do you go to find the improvement articles? Like what, how does your, your research gathering go to put together a link fest? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of it has grown from Substack itself. Certainly, we've been happy to have more people join the community and start blogging. And I think there's plenty of room for more. Certainly, we could use some more book reviewers. And people are very interested, at least again, in my audience and reading chess book reviews. I mean, unfortunately, like many things in the chess world, as you and Chris discussed, it can be relatively thankless work. Um, but shout out to Nick Weissel, for example, who started publishing his book reviews on Substack. And um, I, I always enjoy it. But to, to answer your question, I mean, so I have a Google Doc where every time I read a blog post that I find interesting, I uh, add someone to the Google Doc so that when I'm getting everything together every Friday, I just go through every page and make sure I didn't miss anything new. Now, the list is getting kind of long. So sometimes even with the list, I'll like miss one or two because sometimes I don't do it all in one sitting. Um, but that's that's basically it. So I always check the Lee Chess community, chess people's personal blogs um, and check Substack. I mean, as a content tip, I definitely find 
people's personal blogs are like the hardest ones to keep up with, I think. Um, but I do, I try to do my part at least. And would you want people to send you their blogs if, uh, or, or would you just be overwhelmed then, do you think? Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't want them, someone to send me them every week, but if it's something they really worked hard on, um, or if they're launching something, certainly I would want them to say like, hey, can you just check in on this, you know, every week? Um, definitely would, would encourage that. Um, I, I'm also, another thing I struggle with is I don't know how much to curate um, what I'm linking. I sort of err on the side of abundance. I sort of feel like people, you know, it tends to be 20 articles at most and more, more commonly say 10 to 15. I figure, because I, I subscribe to like, you know, a few other uh, newsletter type things in different realms. And I figure I can curate for myself. It's just nice to have that list in front of me. But I don't know if people would want me to be doing more like my top five or more like this is everything that might be interesting to you. And right now I err more on the latter side. So I certainly don't mind if people, if they they have a project that's not getting attention. Uh, my email address is ben at perpetualchesspod.com. There you go. Great. And yeah, uh, yeah, definitely shout out to Nick. Nick's, uh, there's been a lot of new blogs this year that have started. And Nick is definitely a great writer. Um, Dan Bock has an excellent uh, blog. Yeah, as he well. does. Yeah, shout, shout out, out to Dan. To Dan. Yeah. And Nick, it's, it's, there's something instructive there because Nick's been writing these reviews on Amazon forever. You know, I've come across them just like when I was getting ready to interview people. You know, Elijah Logazar is another one, but there aren't that many people who are writing like really thoughtful reviews on Amazon. And you can tell like they really read the book and provide some insight. So I had seen Nick's reviews on that and he's repackaging some of them for Substack. But obviously by doing that, you you gain an audience and people in the chess realm, they don't care that much if the book is new, you know, um, because it's not covering news. So Nick's able to to review some of the classics and people... Um, people still will find it interesting. I should give a shout out to Dr. Potzer as well. I know he's been reviewing books for years. Absolutely, um, yeah. So, um, so yeah. Anyway, there's plenty of room for for more. Yeah, I might even write an end of year blog of you know good shit I've read this year. <laughs> Basically, yeah, that might be nice way to sort of summarize the year. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. All right. So uh, speaking of summarizing the year then, uh, anything uh, of note that happened this year that you haven't talked about yet? I mean, time is a flat circle. Who knows? 2023, 2022. I, I don't know when stuff happened anymore. I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the, the book will have been the major project of the year for me and in the chess world. I don't know. Kramnik's... Uh, Kramnik's possibly losing his mind. Um, <laughs> can, can I say that? Um, yeah, we'll check back I, on that one in my on my fourth chess birthday party. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So uh, why don't you tell people where they can get the book um, and uh, you know plug anything else you want to plug? Chess book course, whatever. Yeah. Thanks. So so yeah, perpetual chess improvement. It's um, you can get it on Forward Chess and Kindle. People who ask, I do say it's particularly well suited as. Arnold was alluding to, it's mostly words, so you can comfortably read it on Kindle. The aforementioned Nick Faisal actually made um, a uh, Lee chess study so that if you do want to play through the chess, you can keep that open. 
But yeah, I mean, the book's not hard to find. I'm not hard to find. Mainly uh, glad you took the time to read the book and uh, it's uh, great to chat with you. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it, Ben. Honestly, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air in the chess book world uh, to have something that you can just relax with in the evening and uh, not have to work uh, too hard with the, the board and pieces. So yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That was definitely the goal. So I'm glad to hear that. All right. Thanks for joining us, Ben. My pleasure. Uh, we'll do it again sometime. Hello, hello. This is Yara here. I'm Ono's wife and the other half of the Ono's own behind the scenes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ono Another Chess Podcast. Yay. <laughs> if you like to hear more about me, you can go ahead and listen to episode six of this podcast where I was honored to be a guest and I was being interviewed by Ono. Uh, although I am not half as knowledgeable about chess as some of our other guests like Ben Johnson today. Such an honor to have him on the podcast. And if you enjoyed this interview, make sure to leave a five-star rating so that more chess players can find it. And also definitely check out the Patreon Zoom Hangout on the 15th of December with Ben Johnson himself. And Ono will be there as well, uh, as well as other adult improvers. So check the show notes for details on how to get the Zoom link for that. And other than that, I hope that you will also go and check out Ben's book, Perpetual Chess Improvement, because it's a great one. You can also find more details on that down below as well as more info on Ono's Adult Improver Chess Coaching and other details of where you can find us. Uh, Ono will be back with another episode of Ono and Other Chess Podcast in two weeks, as always. And in the meantime, I wish you all the chess.